Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... A special edition of Little Atoms, ahead of the announcement of the 2016 Pendarin Music Book Prize. The Pendarin Music Book Prize is organised by Richard Thomas, the founder of the Lawn Weekend Festival, and is the only UK-based book prize specifically for music titles, including history, theory, biography and autobiography. The winner will be announced at the Lawn Weekend Festival on the 3rd of April 2016. And in this special edition of Little Atoms, I'm talking to one of the prize judges, Jude Rogers, and then the shortlisted authors, Stuart Cosgrove and Peter Doggett. I'm on the phone with music journalist Jude Rogers, who's one of the judges of the Pendering Prize. So, Jude, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. That's OK. My pleasure. And tell me something about what the Pendering Prize is. So the Pendering Prize is for music books, essentially. And it's the first prize I've been involved in that actually looks at books about music as a genre, I guess. Um, but obviously within that, you have a lot of variety. You can have memoir, you can have social history. I've been involved um, with um, the Lawn Literary Festival and doing interviews and stuff like that for some years now. And uh, the Pendering Prize is being announced at Lawn and is very much tied in to um, the festival there at Lawn. And down at Lawn, basically every year there's is a real mix between literature and music it always has been like that down there so um this prize is a continuation of that spirit really and so i was going to ask how you ended up on the judging panel but i guess that's why because of your your association with lan yeah for, because of my association with lan possibly a slight element in my welshness who knows um you know welsh whiskey welsh me um also because i review music books a lot i review music books the observer in the last year, I've, well, the last six months, I've reviewed a new Nina Simone biography, the Carly Simon autobiography. I wrote a big piece about women's um, voices coming through in rock memoir kind of last year. So it's something I'm steeped in a little bit. And uh, it's been quite interesting coming to this prize because it's been, you know, I know every judge on every prize says, oh, it's just been such a fertile year for blah, blah, blah. But the shortlist... Um, the long list, rather, um, was quite daunting because I'd read a few of these books, but all, a lot of them had um, had very good critical notices and a lot of them are like bricks <laughs> as well. So um, it was quite, a, quite a, a, you know, a great job, but quite a lot of stuff to um, dig from, dig through, rather. 
Before we talk about the books, who else is on the judging panel with you? Oh, so on the judging panel, um, Stuart McConey's on the judging panel, Mark Ellen, um, my former editor at The Word magazine, who I'm looking forward to seeing in a couple of weeks, and Danny Nightingale, who I interviewed about five years ago. I'm really looking forward to seeing her again. Um, Green Guard side, of course, um, and Robin Ince, who's always been involved with um, Lan as well, but... Uh, Green Guards that I've done a few things with before and other kind of um, literary events and um, very literary man. It'd be interesting to know what he thinks of these books. It's quite um, intimidating. It's kind of this kind of great list of people, you know, who have been reading books for uh, music books and writing about music books probably for a lot longer than I have. But, you know, people who will probably see the form change over the years as well. And I find it quite interesting this year that there are quite... You know, I don't know, different um, styles of music books seem to be coming through. Uh, kind of more, sort of more honest take on um, what it's like to be a musician. Um, less of the putting somebody up on a pedestal and talking about music in this very reverential way. And both in the books that are about music and both the books that are by musicians themselves. So let's talk about what those books are then. What are the six shortlisted books? So the six shortlisted books, we've got... Um, 1966 by John Savage, uh, which I'm sure um, a lot of people will have seen, um, kind of uh, been reviewed, um, you know, all around the place. Yeah, he's been on Little Atoms already as well. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, obviously, John Savage is probably still best known for England's Dreaming, which was, you know, a huge um, success, you know, both critically and you know, commercially in his field, kind of, um, back when it was published, um, about punk rock. Um, also his book, Teenage, you know, he's a kind of very established writer, but um, a very interesting writer in that he writes, uh, he's a writer that's kind of almost, to me, kind of takes over because like an investigation into a kind of period or a kind of subject and always he takes very fresh and usual approaches to his subject. You know, he doesn't, you know, a book about 1966, you'd expect it probably to just, you know, focus on the big stars. He focuses on a lot of the smaller players who made different contributions, you know, to that that year. Obviously, there's um there's quite a few books that have been coming out about different years, and it's a good device that seems quite popular at the moment. Took a one year as kind of a, a lens through which you can view popular culture of, of that era in general. Um, and there's another book on the list um, that follows that, which is less known, um, Detroit 67, The Year of the Changed Soul by Stuart Cosgrove, which is a book I hadn't come across before, but a really interesting take on, kind of, is a bit of a social history of a city at a certain period in time, but also about civil rights, about how music is tied up with that. And uh, he's a writer that I've known in the past, but um, as I say, this is a book I hadn't come across, and it's a really riveting read um, by a smaller publisher that people might not have come across. And I always love when prizes, you know, things across to the potential readers that they might have seen before. I think that's the point of prizes, to, to mix these things up. We also have on the list um, quite a few books by musicians themselves. Naked at the Alba Hall, The Inside Story of Singing by Tracy Thorne, um, which is her follow-up to uh, Better Disco Queen um, for Virago. And it's, it's a book about singing from a singer, and that might seem to be kind of quite an easy subject um but tracy thorne's writing so i really like her as a writer she takes you down avenues you won't necessarily expect she talks you know brilliantly about she defends um why she sings in an americanized accent for instance which is quite interesting she talks about her love of the x factor things you would not expect you know the singer from everything but the girl and the solo singer that we've known for so long to do um and she she's quite rigorous going into kind of um academic thinking about singing and the voice and how the voice actually works um physiologically if i can say that um so that's that's an interesting book you've got um 
Electric Shock, I'm going to get this title right, I've got it written down here, From Gramphone to the iPhone, 125 Years of Pop Music by Peter Doggett. Now there's a title, um, 125 Years, there's a feat. Peter Doggett wrote You Never Give Me Your Money, which is a brilliant book about the Beatles and um, about looking at the later on in their career when they were having massive financial difficulties and writes about the history of them through that period, which was done really well. Sounds quite a dull way to approach the Beatles, but it was a really fascinating way of looking at their relationships and stuff like that. Um, and this book, you know, kind of um, sort of takes that same approach. You know, it's a real kind of historians, a pop historians digging into the details kind of book. And another brick that nearly broke my back, carrying it around in my rucksack. Elvis Costello, um, his book Unfaithful Music, you know, long awaited is a cliche, but it definitely was. Uh, so um, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing, you know, look, looking at um, his career in a very refreshing voice. Um, he's, a, he's a really good writer. Patti Smith's um, M Train, the follow-up to Just Kids, which I really liked too. You know, I like all the books on this list. It's a really tough um, shortlist. Um, I really like Patti Smith's M Train um, because it looks at, you know, the period after the period that made her. Just Kids obviously looked at her early days in New York and the kind of idea of Patti Smith that we all have crystallised in our heads, you know, that's been kind of perpetuated by myth and legend and all this stuff from music magazines or whatever. But M Train looks at her... Um, a little bit older. It's not all about music. It's about her day-to-day life. And ever since um, Viv Alpatine's um, Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, 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 I've always been really, you know, that was the first book that made me think, you know, it's actually really interesting just to learn about the afterlife of a musician after their first flush of success. And this does that as well. That's it. That's all six. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, a really interesting selection. As you said, there's a couple of books that are specifically about one year, one that covers 125 years, and three books that are by musicians themselves. As a music journalist and as somebody that reviews music books, what do you look for? I mean, what, what do you want to see from a music book? I want something that's going to, that I haven't read before. And that's always a challenge with music journalism. You know, you can repeat the same cliches and the same well-worn, hoary pub anecdotes again and again and again. And, you know, we live in a world where we're bombarded by music content and uh, we know the same old stories. I've been looking for authors that have presented a material in a new way or have cut through the cliches and the myths and the legends, really. And all these books do that in, in different ways. Yeah, they're, they're all books that, um, that the work has been put in on them, whether that be the musician in their own lives or the writer's you know, through their own kind of uh, hours in the library or wherever. Um, it feels like everybody's made the effort to try and do something different and present a fresh set of stories. How does the judging process work for this award? Because, you know, I've, I've spoken to other people about other awards like the um, like the Welcome Prize or the Booker Prize, and it's a very, very long process as things, hundreds of books are whittled down. And you, you talked about the fact that there was a long list and now there's a short list. But did you suggest earlier that you hadn't actually met up yet? No, we haven't met up yet. We've all been doing this individually. So basically we all had boxes and boxes of books sent to our houses um the end of last year november to december basically some of them i, I was in the lucky position that i have read some of them already and then we had to just go through them and come up with um individual shortlists which were then you know kind of um collated you know, we had to nominate um basically say what our, our favorite was and then a couple of other ones that we really recommend highly a couple one of mine didn't get through to a bit of a shame but you know um it was really tough. I, I I feel the cliche spewing out of my mouth as I'm saying that. But, um, you know, it's a really strong year for books. You know, it seems that publishers are taking punts on different 
sort of voices as well and kind of um, treating music as a subject that has this potential to attract new audiences through publishing, which I think is quite exciting. And when are we going to know the winner? When's it announced? It's announced um, on Sunday um, um, afternoon at the Lan Festival. It's um, Sunday afternoon, so that's the 3rd of April. I don't know who the winner is yet. We're, I, we're, we're going to be meeting up at some point um, over the weekend. But yeah, it's um, going to be announced then. So um, to be fair, you know, if any of these books won, I'd be quite happy. Usually um, I've judged the Mercury Prize before, did that for six years, and I did, could not say that was the case some years. <laughs> but, um, if one won one over the others, as happened several times, I was quite uh, annoyed. But any book from this list, you know, I'm not just being diplomatic. Genuinely, I would be pleased if any of the books on this list won. That's brilliant. Jude Rogers, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Stuart Cosgrove is from Perth, Scotland, and is a television executive with Channel 4. A professional journalist and broadcaster, he was a staff writer with the Black Music Paper Echoes and media editor with the NME. Stuart presents BBC Scotland's popular radio show, Off the Ball, and is a rare soul collector. He's the author of Detroit 67, The Year That Changed Soul, which is shortlisted for the 2016 Pandarian Music Book Prize. So, Stuart, thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much indeed. Look forward to it. Let's talk about 1967. What's significant about that year? Well, I I wanted to focus on a year where I felt that soul music was going through significant challenges. And the city of Detroit uh, was one of the significant kind of cultural kind of heartlands of black American music at that time. Now, 1967 is significant for a whole range of different reasons. And the book follows the events of that year through 12 chapters following the 12 months of 1967 from January through to December. And of course, it follows some of the big, big social disruptions of that time. In the uh, July 1967, uh, Detroit was visited by the worst urban riots in then in modern American history, 43 people dead, hundreds injured. Uh, the city of Detroit, the centre of Detroit, kind of pretty much burnt to the ground. And alongside that, of course, were other huge forces, the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, And, you know, it was just a a really, really exciting crucible of different events going on. Soul music itself was going through a lot of profound change. The Supremes were already established as the greatest girl group in the world. Motown was at its height and had its most successful year in 1965, uh, globally uh, being seen around the world as the great a black American-owned um, record company. But inside, at the heart of the Supremes, was a dispute that would eventually tear the group apart. So there's so much going on personally and politically that it made um, sense for me to focus on that year. So what does soul music mean to you personally, then? Well, soul music's been one of the kind of abiding loves of my life. I, I grew up as a young kid, uh, in uh, a place called Lethem in Perth in Scotland at a community centre. There's a big housing scheme and at the centre of the was a community centre and the disco on a Friday night, the DJ played ska and Motown and that was kind of the music of my teenage years. And just uh, the more that I kind of listened to it, the deeper I got involved. 
uh, subsequently became uh, someone who was active in the northern soul scene, the collector and the rare soul scene. But as I moved into journalism, my love affair with black American music uh, got richer and deeper, and I just became one of the great obsessions of my life. So it's always been there in my life since I was probably about 15 or 16 year, years old, and it remains the kind of thing that can really kind of make me joyous in the morning. If I hear a Motown record, it makes me happy. And so you've explained why 1967 in particular, but why write this book now? What particularly inspired you to write it? Well, I, I've always had a, a deep interest. My uh, my passion, actually, when I was a student, I was I studied uh, American history and had written a PhD in the 1930s. So I was already interested in, uh, if you like, in the wider sweep of American history. And I really had this desire that I wanted to write uh, an epic social history of soul music, not just something that kind of was a biography of a group or something that was just a kind of review of my favorite records, but something a bit bigger than that. Now, you know, uh, Detroit 67 is a fairly substantial book. It's, uh, some might call it a brick or a kind of, uh, you know, a bit of a beast of a book. But I think that you could write about these things and skimp over them. It's, it's a very, very deep and profound era. And if you're going through a year, you know, across the 365 days of the year, inevitably it's going to kind of deal with kind of uh, matters of some scale. So it's quite big book, but I think its scale is, is actually part of its uh, attraction for people. Um, I've had tremendous feedback on the book, and, you know, that feedback is extended from kind of people that were already committed soul fans right through to people that were, you know, kind of coming to the music and, you know, falling in love with it because of the kind of richness of the story they were reading, you know. You've already said that there's there's two main strands here in the book. So on the one hand, we've got the soul music, the rise and fall of, of Motown as a company, and particularly through the story of the Supremes, but also the revolutionary racial politics in Detroit, riots and governmental corruption and police corruption that engulfed the city that year. Let's talk about the politics first of all. In a sort of wider context, you've already mentioned the sort of riots and things. Let's talk about why. So... I mean, I guess to quote one of the other people that crops up in the book, what's going on? Well, Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On is a, a song that actually uh, is not recorded and or rather not released until the early 70s. But the origins of the song and the origins of uh, what I think is one of the greatest kind of soundscapes of uh, African-American life is just a brilliant concept album. Uh, and interestingly enough, Bobby Benson, one of the four tops, the, the four tops had been on tour and... Uh, the west coast of America, and they'd witnessed this uh, police attack on students in uh, San Francisco. And he had come home to Detroit and been telling this story to, first of all, to his uh, the guy that shared an apartment with him. And they started to go away and try and write a record simply called What's Going On. And they talked to Marvin Gaye about it. And this was probably in the summer of 67. And uh, effectively, what happened then is Marvin Gaye, over the next two or three years, started to write this, what became the greatest concept album of the soul music era, and started to write about Vietnam. His brother, Frankie Gaye, was a serving soldier in Vietnam. And uh, they were corresponding through a series of letters about what was going on in Detroit from the perspective of Marvin Gaye and what was going on in, in Vietnam from the perspective of his brother Frankie Gaye. And through that, all of those letters and sentences and words and images from the letters appear in the album. So although the album didn't really come out until the early 70s, it was, uh, it was being conceived, if you like, uh, throughout the late 60s. And what had Detroit been like 
before, so leading up to that point, what was it that made Detroit the crucible of all of this, of all of this trouble? Well, uh, you know, it's it's a very uh, difficult question to answer very, very simply. But let me try this: that um, inevitably, Detroit was uh, famous because of the car plants and because of the motor city concept of having all the top five um, manufacturers of automobiles in the world were based in the city. And so it was a very kind of vibrant city. Um, it also uh, had a lot of um, industry that had opened up uh, in the Second World War, about 1943 onwards, where the military had um, used Detroit as a place for the building of you know, tanks and uh, aircrafts and things like that. And so it, it had this reputation, particularly for black Americans from the southern states as being a place where you could go and were guaranteed to get work and could get housing and all the rest of it. But I think by uh, the 50s, that was beginning to face uh, fundamental challenges uh, and decline. And uh, by 1967, um, you know, you started to see more wildcat strikes, more people being on short-term contracts of more young black Americans that were actually unemployed and they were obviously people who could easily be recruited into the army to fight in Vietnam and uh, during the Vietnam War in the summers of uh, 67 and 68, Detroit um, witnessed more people coming home in body bags than any other urban city. So it, it suffered tremendously through deindustrialization but also through the kind of uh, outputs of the war in Vietnam. I want to talk about some of the characters in the book and particularly to start with let's talk about Barry Gordy who's one of the founders of, of Motown so who was he? Well Barry Gordy the book begins with Barry Gordy there's um, uh, on the 1st of January 1967 there's a, a severe snowstorm now the famous uh, Detroit uh, writer Elmore Leonard has uh, often said never ever start a book with the weather uh, unfortunately, I didn't have enough a lot of options because on the 1st of January 1967, Detroit was visited by the worst snowstorm in its modern history, and the city for the next four or five days was literally in lockdown. I mean, people couldn't leave their homes, schools were closed, public transport wasn't functioning, uh, the car plants were either closed entirely or were placed on short-term shifts, and so basically a lot of people were stuck in their homes. And the book begins with Barry Gordy, by then a young millionaire, the most successful African-American uh, record entrepreneur uh, in the States. And he's stuck in home, and he's home in Outer Drive in Monica, a, a kind of more suburban and smart area of Detroit at the time. And he was, by virtue of being stuck at home and unable to get to his offices, had begun to imagine what the year ahead was alike. And virtually in his mind, beginning to kind of think what his New Year resolutions would be, and those resolutions included one of them was to try to bring to an end an internal emotional war at the heart of the Supremes, his most successful group. Uh, he was himself at the time going out with Diana Ross. They were lovers. Uh, and so to some extent, another ulterior motive he had was to uh, turn Diana Ross into a solo singer uh, and manipulate a change uh, at the heart of uh, the Supremes. So it's a very dramatic beginning because you begin to meet the, the central characters in this rather strange backdrop of them being housebound because of the snow outside. But you realize, of course, that the snow outside, which is having this huge impact on Detroit, that the city of Detroit is probably the book's greatest character. It's the character that stays throughout the entire 
entire book, Berry Gordy would be your number two character, and then after that, members of the Supremes and other uh, other singers at the Motown Corporation. So in lots of ways, it's trying to build up kind of the sense of place of where you are and what the social conditions of the time are and how they're impacting on Berry Gordy, who's a remarkable uh, young man because I mean he's he's, he's transformed. Um, soul music in as much as it's something that was up until the mid-60s had been confined largely to kind of the undistributed ghetto uh, culture. There was very little national distribution and Motown broke the spell and turned it into a very successful pop company that had international distribution and of course became famous all through Europe as well as in America. And this is a year when the internal strife tears the Supremes apart. So you've already mentioned Diana Ross, who goes on to become even more of a superstar. But this book is really the story of Florence Ballard, isn't it? Yes, and Florence Ballard's story is is, is deeply tragic and in lots of ways is, you know, is a counterpoint to the success of uh, Diana Ross. Uh, Florence Ballard's from a fairly deprived uh, family. I describe her as being from a blues family. Her father was a very good uh, blues musician in Detroit, uh, and was working as well in the car plants. And, but she came from a very big family, relatively chaotic family, and one that was also prone to alcoholism as well. And uh, over the sense of the year, you can feel that she's kind of uh, beginning to teeter on the brink of a breakdown, part brought by depression, in part brought on by uh, a loneliness and the deeply lonely thing of simply being on the road every day of your life and being away from your friends, away from your family, away from the, the city you grew up. And you can tell that uh, she's not coping well with that and that the kind of depression that sets in and starts to kind of gnaw away at her heart leads to her to believe that she herself wants to go solo but wants to give up on actually being a musician at all. Um, so it's a really, really sad story and it follows through, of course, that she dies very young in her life, age 32, um, by which time she's already lost all of her, all the money she made as a singer at Motown and is on welfare in the city of Detroit and her children being provided for by the then teetering social health care system in America. What Motown is producing, and you know, Barry Goddy was very insistent on this, is pop music. Apart from, obviously, we were talking about earlier about what would go on to, to influence Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, how does creating that pop music in this tumultuous year change the music, or does it even? Well, I think it does, in as much as you can begin in 1967 to see the beginnings of the future of African-American music. I mean, Motown is at its, its peak, the kind of songs that uh, had become synonymous with Motown, the you know, the, the great songs of kind of Holland Dozier, Holland era, which were all great kind of pop hits, you know, Baby Love, Stop in the Name of Love, uh, you know, You Keep Me Hanging On, all of these songs which are universally famous and much loved even today, uh, Holland Dozier, Holland fall out with Berry Gordy, in fact, they go on strike in 1967 and eventually um, uh, end up in huge legal dispute with Gordy. But they're starting also to experiment with different forms of music. You know, you, you start to see the origins really of a kind of more synthesized soul music. The first synthesizers are being sold in, 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 in America. Uh, Stevie Wonder is one of, the, uh, one of the lucky people that buys the first 20 uh, synthesizers. And uh, he begins the journey that takes him into the inner visions concept that is self-reflection on his own blindness using electronic music. You see the rise of psychedelic soul. By the end of the year, the Temptations are, and their producers are experimenting with 
the crossover, and it's a big crossover with, within the book, is the rise of hallucinogenic drugs and the psychedelic scene within America. So all of these things are having an impact on the sound of soul music. And for some people, and for a kind of vanguard within soul music, the Motown side of the classic two-and-a-half-minute pop song is becoming old-fashioned, a bit conservative, nonetheless still very successful. Also, the book tells the story of, I mean, you, you just sort of mentioned the sort of psychedelic movement, but out of that fermenting revolutionary politics of Detroit comes another band, the MC5. So what's their part in this story? Well, again, uh, returning back to the uh, epic snowstorm at the beginning of the year, a group of young uh, revolutionary radical men called the Steering Committee who are connected to the legalization of marijuana, they're connected to the opposition to the war in Vietnam. They're a group of young radicals um, who, who, who are effectively working within the Detroit Artist Workshop um, become involved in what begins as really a suburban garage band called uh, Motor City 5 or MC5. And, uh, and with the support of the group themselves, the group are transformed into probably the most radical rock band in the history of America, a very, very, very deeply political group who uh, you know, become the significant kind of oppositional rock band in the States and kind of almost come to define the, the, the heights of kind of Detroit garage music. But interestingly enough, some of the people around the steering committee and around John Sinclair, who's the uh, putative manager of MC5, um, emerges the White Panther movement, a kind of subsidiary to the Black Panther movement. And uh, a number of those people end up moving to Ann Arbor near Detroit and eventually blowing up the offices of the CIA in Ann Arbor and becoming the most, most wanted men in America. So it's a truly kind of radical political group seeking literally to transform uh, the means of production in America and take on the American state. Um, so they're a fascinating story in their own right. And the fact that they were born, grew up and emerged within a few miles of Motown simultaneous to them, that a small regional city, Detroit, could have two of the most powerful strands of music ever sitting side by side, but never really meeting because, of course, the city was um, segregated largely across racial lines. And although the steering committee and Motown were only two miles apart, they never really met. The worlds never really collided. And I understand this is the first of a projected trilogy, so what else can we expect? Yeah, well, the second book I'm already um, working on, and that's in a fairly good kind of state already, that's called Memphis 68, and it follows the uh, events of, uh, in the city of Memphis in the year 1968. begins with the death of Otis Redding and ends with the assassination of Martin Luther King, so it's kind of bookended by those two big deaths. Um, but in the meantime, my publishers have been on my case to do a social history of the northern soul scene. So that's completed and finished and will come out in, uh, in May of this year. That's called Young Soul Rebels, uh, A Personal History of Northern Soul. So that's coming out in May. And then a republished version of Detroit 67 will be out later this year and then Memphis 68 early next year. And then after that, I've got a third book that I want to write about the city of New York, but I've not completely decided which year it will focus on but I want something that's kind of transformative that may well be something that's set in the 70s against the backdrop of kind of disco and club culture and whatever but still to really bottom that out and do the research yet so that third one's subject to a wee bit of change. And you mentioned Detroit 67's being republished well this this book that I'm holding that's been shortlisted for the Pendarian Prize was self-published. Self-published yes uh -huh. and I made the decision to self-publish it. I had uh, two publishers that I was working with, 
uh, both of whom, uh, for various reasons, are very, very uh, good publishers, but they were keen to shorten it, and they were keen also to make it more about Motown, and I was fairly determined I wanted to write a social history. And you know the thing is, in the world of uh, self-publishing now, when you've already written a book, and you've done the hard work, and you've done the research, and it's up to 600 pages, and that's what the book that you believe in, it's so much easier to just publish it yourself now than fall out with a publisher and try and take 300 pages out of it, you know. So that that was the reason I went ahead with self-publishing. But that kind of fits in a little bit with the whole culture now of kind of independent publishing anyway. It's not such a difficult thing to do now as it used to be. But it also, I think, adds adds a certain poignancy to, the, to my last question, which I'm asking everyone, which is what does being shortlisted for this prize mean to you? Well, I think for me it just means that the, the book has a merit. It's up against absolutely phenomenal competition and um, it's... Uh, you know, going to be fearsome in the final. You know, you're, you're looking there at kind of some of the great kind of pop singers uh, of our time, you know, Elvis Costello, Tracy Thorns in there, John Savage, who's a phenomenally good writer. So there's a certain degree of privilege about the company you're keeping within it. So that's an endorsement. And of course, because I've gone and made this an indie publishing, it very much chimes with the times. I think all the other books that are on the list are by traditional publishers and you know, I think now the kind of world of self-publishing is coming of age. So I'm fairly proud of that as well, that I've been such a kind of, you know, I've been working on it in my own way and doing it my way. And, you know, it isn't to say that there wasn't a book to be done. In fact, the one I'm republishing will be slightly shorter just because I want, I'm happy to kind of go some way to compromise with the publisher now. But the book I wanted to publish first thing was the, was the book that was the social history. And that had for me to be a book of scale. So I've been talking to Stuart Cosgrove about his book Detroit 67, The Year That Changed Souls. Stuart, thank you very much for sharing it with me. Thank you very much indeed. An absolute pleasure. Wonderful. Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Andrew Muller. Check out the growing Little Atoms media empire at littleatoms.com. Peter Doggett has been writing about popular music and social and cultural history for more than 30 years, his most recent publication being The Man Who Sold the World, David Bowie in the 1970s. Of his many other books, You Never Give Me Your Money, A Study of the Beatles' Breakup and Its Traumatic Aftermath, was chosen by the Los Angeles Times as one of its 10 best books of 2010. And his latest book, which is shortlisted for the 2016 Pendarian Music Book Prize, is Electric Shock, From the Gramophone to the iPhone, 125 Years of Pop Music. Peter, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. That's okay, nice to be here. As I've just said, this book covers 125 years of musical history, and it's a it's a big, thick tome as well, so as, as this is a shorter interview, we'll just cover a little part of it, which I think is probably roughly going to be up to about the introduction of, of electronic recording, which is an, an innovation that comes about a third of the way through the book that changes things. And um, before we get into that, give us a brief description of what the book's about, Peter. I've been a music journalist for more than 30 years, going back to the early 80s, and I've been writing books um, more or less full time for the last 10 years. And I was aware that the, there was nothing out there in terms of books that really seemed to capture the whole sort of um, the vast expanse of popular music as I had experienced it. I have got pretty wide tastes myself. And if you read the uh, rock magazines, your mojos and uncuts, or if you watch documentaries on BBC4, you get only a very partial view of what I think pop history was about. So I knew I wanted to go further back than the birth of rock and roll or the blues immediately post-war or whatever. And so the problem then is how far back do you go? What are your borderlines? And I kept thinking, okay, well I can go back to Sinatra and then you think oh no Bing Crosby and then Louis Armstrong Um, and the more I investigated that early period the more I realized that what I thought was going to be a history history of the 20th century um, actually began in the 1890s and the, the, the two most important facets of pop in the 20th century, both actually happened in the 1890s. Um, The first of which was the birth of recorded sound, which completely altered the whole notion of musical performance in an almost existentialist way. For the first time, music didn't just exist at the moment it was performed. It could be captured and stored for posterity. So that was one thing. And the other thing was the emergence of ragtime, which is the first African-American music star to go around the world. It was the first one which was very much aimed at young people rather than the um, whole gamut, you know, in, in terms of family entertainment. And it was also the first musical form which became a source of outrage, really, and, and, and was used <laughs> in, in, in a very aggressive way by those people who hated it. Before this point, before the invention of recorded music, what were people listening to? What would popular music have been 
I, I suppose, first of all, the whole divide that we take for granted now between pop music and classical music would, wouldn't really have existed so that Mozart or Bach could just as easily be counted as popular because people liked it. In terms of popular entertainment, as enjoyed by the masses, it would be going to the music hall, it would be going to local concerts by brass bands or whatever, which are all things that continued well into the 20th century. In fact, I'm sure at the seaside you can still go and see a brass band on a, on a Sunday afternoon. But these were the only occasions outside the home where anybody would have the opportunity to see other people performing music. Let's talk about the invention of recorded music then. So, I mean, the first thing that really comes along is is Edison's phonograph. But there's also this point where, as will occur all the way through this history of popular music, there's like what we call format wars, the LP versus the CD and now the MP3. And at this point, there was a, a format war between the phonograph, the graphophone and what we would all recognise, the gramophone. Well, three different kinds of instrument, but really two different kinds of record, if you like, or, or, although one of them wasn't. There, were, there, there was something that anybody who has experienced the vinyl age would recognise as a record, um, although much more fragile and with terrible, terrible sound quality. And then also a um, cylinder, which would be etched um, and would, would sort of capture the sound. Now, the, the most important difference between the cylinder and the early gramophone disc was that each time you recorded a cylinder, you could only make one version of that recording. And so if um, a popular entertainer wanted to sell 5,000 copies, he or she would have to sing the song 5,000 times, which was obviously very wearing. Now, after a few years, they did find ways to mass produce the cylinder. This obviously gave the gramophone disc, which could be mass produced, um, a real advantage from the start. Now, all of those musical forms that you said people were obviously listening to before the invention of recorded music are the first things that are recorded, those same sort of popular artists. But also out of this emerges the first, what we would describe as the first superstar of recorded music. Who was that? Um, Enrico Caruso is the person I'm sure you're talking about, who was an operatic tenor with a voice that can still really sort of tug at the heartstrings today. I don't I don't think his appeal has died. It's just a shame we don't have better quality recordings to, to um, listen to him on. And this is really a perfect example of what I was saying earlier about the lack of divide between classical music and pop music, because by modern standards, most of his output was classical arias, um, and yet he appealed to as wide an, an audience in his time as, I don't know, the Beatles or whatever would have done in the 19, 1960s, 1970s. Um, so he completely cut across that divide and also the generational divide. Young people would listen to him and um, as w- would older people as well. And um, the fact that he was recording material that came from operas and, and came from world-renowned composers meant that the record companies were able to charge more for his records than they would for a a fly-by-night comic song that might you would be expected to forget after a couple of weeks and it would be replaced by something else, a bit like the hit songs of today. So you, the Caruso records would cost three or four times more than what we would now think of as a pop song. And there are, the, there are documented cases of people who couldn't afford to have the player but would actually buy a Caruso disc to sort of mount and put on the wall just to show how cultured they were. 
so this is really like the the beginnings of what we would now recognize as as popular music and there's a there's there's always there's got to be a start lots of points in this book there will be like a although these things are obviously they're not really as ever clear cut but there's always somebody who history records as as the father of a certain genre or something we'll come on to that a bit later on when we get we start to talk about jazz and the blues a little bit as well um but there's a guy called charles k harris who who you finger in this book as the progenitor of popular music who was he an extremely prolific songwriter who, who also wrote the first guy to writing a popular song and he was also the first person to try and break down and he came up with a list of all the different kinds of popular songs that there were and there'll be songs about mothers and songs of broken hearts and so on some categories that have survived to this day and other ones that have completely vanished from history he wrote a song called after the ball which was sung by everybody at the time, lived on for two or three generations afterwards, and sold millions and millions of copies of sheet music in the 1890s, which was the main way that the general public actually bought their music. The um, sales of sheet music were huge in comparison to the number of records that were being sold at that time. One of the types of music on his list of of suggestions for music to write is the, the appallingly named coon music. Now... I mean, it's a truism that all forms of, of popular music have come out of originally black music and have been taken on by white musicians and musical impresarios. And this has been going on all the way through the history of popular music. Uh, we're going to talk, let's talk about ragtime, first of all, which is you've already mentioned and is the first big musical genre that comes along after recorded music, but also is the first one that starts to cause a bit of controversy as well. And this is, I think, is it's a good example of, of the those other stealings from black music in that obviously people like and appreciate black music to want to take it and record it and to make money out of it but at the same time there's this like really appalling atmosphere of the what we call coon music and the minstrel shows and things like that isn't um, yes, I mean, the, the uh, Coon song is a direct descendant from the black minstrel tradition, which which began as a form of entertainment for black people, for other black people, and very quickly became a form of entertainment in which, which black people often put on black makeup to uh, black themselves up even more, so that they would look like cartoon caricatures of themselves, and then perform for white people. So the in, in the 1850s, 1860s, in, in American towns, you would get the minstrel troupe coming in. And they, it wouldn't just be songs, they'd be doing dancing, comic routines or whatever. And this became sort of formularised, if you like, and then squashed into, into this thing called the coon song, which really came to the fore again in the 1890s, early years of the 20th century. And it's black and white people singing in a very um, over-the-top, fake, black style. In the same sort of way, I suppose, that in later years, you, you got white singers who had no feeling for the blues pretending to sound black when they were singing. It's, it's just that in the 1890s, the insult was much, much more obvious. The first real ragtime song, or the first song that we, that we now think of as being from the ragtime era, was called All Coons Look Alike to Me. And it was written by a black man, which, I mean, that, that sort of sums up the awful situation of black entertainers and black songwriters at that point. The fact that a black writer had to write something like that, I'm sure hate himself for it, but he had to do that in order to secure an audience. Now, in terms of ragtime, it's definitely an African-American form of music, but there are two entirely different kinds of things which get called ragtime. If you've been talking about ragtime to the uh, piano players in black bars and so on um, in 
the 1890s, they would have told you that ragtime was all about quite complex rags, which were instrumental tunes that often had three or four completely distinct melodic units, not just one melody line, but then they would repeat that, move into a second one, and then seamlessly move into a third, and often a fourth. And as composers like Scott Joplin, who's the most famous of those of those rag composers, he began to develop the form. It steered nearer and nearer to a sort of semi-classical form, where certainly in Joplin's case, he wanted to, to get rid of any boundary between the rags he was writing and instrumental compositions by Chopin or whoever. So, so that was one school of rag. At the other extreme, you get songs which, like the rags, are um, syncopated. They follow an unusual rhythmic patterns, but they are, are, are very much in the minstrel and coon song tradition. And so the, the general public, I think right from the start, didn't really know what ragtime was. All they knew was that it was exotic, it was foreign, it made people move in unexpected ways, and it also loosened people's morals to the extent that, for example, young women would perhaps take their corsets off before they went ragtime dancing. And obviously after that, all kinds of scandal might ensue. And this, as you just, you've just hinted at, is it's sort of down to the beat. Now, you've just mentioned syncopation, which, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated musical term, but give us again a, a brief description of what it is, because it's, it's something that is present throughout the history of popular music right up to the present day. At its simplest... It goes from from the old-fashioned, I'm trying to think how to describe it, square or straight beat, where you go one, two, one, two, one, two, into a cooler one, two, one, two, one, two. It's anything that makes music swing. It's not necessarily always black music. There are apparently examples of syncopation in Bach and Beethoven. But it's something that you find throughout the entire history of black music. Anything that is startling or unusual about a, a, a rhythm, but particularly anything, as I said earlier, which makes um, a song swing. I think it, the, the easiest thing to, to say is that if a song is syncopated, we can hear it. You recognise it. And once you get beyond about 1930, the songs that really stand out are the ones that aren't syncopated. You mentioned Joplin already as one of the big stars that, that came out of ragtime. And I mean, I think he's quite typical again of a, of a thing that often happens with popular musicians in that, as you've already mentioned, he wanted to be taken more seriously. And so was writing more music in the, like ragtime music but more in the vein of classical music which of course inevitably wasn't as popular as the popular stuff that he was doing before yeah and and this is a a, a tradition that goes all the way through the through the history of pop right up to the present day almost the pull between the music that somebody actually wants to write and the music they can make large amounts of money from. Now, what people wanted from Scott Joplin was that he would continue writing catchy, memorable rag tunes. What he wanted to write was the first ragtime opera, and he received no encouragement in his lifetime at all. Since his death, his opera has actually been performed. But at the time he died, he thought he was a complete failure and his career had been a waste of time. But if you, if, if you carry on down the years, there's the jazz musician Artie Shaw, he was huge in the late 30s, 40s, 50s. He wanted to play classical music. Move ahead another 10, 15 years, you get to Brian Wilson with the Beach Boys. Um, everybody wants him to do surf songs. He wants to do Smile. Move ahead again you, in the 70s, you get Joe Mitchell. Everybody's desperate for her to be the folky queen, and she wants to make to do jazz music. Right up to today, Rufus Wainwright is being pushed by his record company all the time to make pop records, whereas actually what he wants to do is write operas and orchestral settings of the uh, Shakespeare sonnets. So there's always this pull between commercialism and you know, art for art's sake. 
I'm David Stubbs. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We're roughly up to about the First World War now. We start to see the beginnings of jazz. Jazz being something that we would easily recognise now as a distinct genre, and also something that we would consider quite a cerebral music. What was it originally considered by the people that were around at the time, and how how did they define it? Well, like ragtime, it began definitely as, as black music. It came out of the uh, street bands in New Orleans, it came out of the blues, and it, and it came out of dance bands, and it came out of ragtime. And there was then, and is is now, no no one definition of jazz. I mean, I, I can't think of a musical form that's wider <laughs> and less easy to categorise, really, than, than jazz has always been. But the most important thing when it arrived in the second half of the 1910s was it made people dance. The first jazz record were actually made by a, a white band who claimed to, to have invented jazz, the original Dixieland jazz band. And their records more or less set the tone for the first few years of jazz on record and that they bashed and banged any percussive instrument they could find. you got people using saucepans and dustbin lids and all sorts of things. Jazz equaled chaos and people dancing madly. And the, the black bands more or less had to, had to follow suit in, a, in, a, in a, sl- a slightly less awkward way. It's only really when you get into the mid-1920s with, with, with Louis Armstrong that perhaps the uh, modern idea of jazz comes through the uh, great soloist. He, he was the first guy, really, who said, OK, besides the ensemble, we're going to bring in a spotlight individual musicians and they're going to blow for a chorus or two choruses and then the band will come back in again. And that is really the, the birth of the star that you know, would lead us to Miles Davis and John Coltrane and whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I was trying to hint at in that although they were the first recorded band, that band, the original Dixieland jazz band, are a band that now jazz aficionados ironically would not actually consider to be jazz. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. And that's true, actually, of most of the music that was written about in the 20s and 30s as being jazz. In retrospect, jazz enthusiasts would say, no, no, they were dance bands. They were syncopated, but they weren't jazz because they weren't improvising. But at the time, they were a band, they were making a terrible racket. And people were dancing to them in an outrageous way. So as far as the press were concerned, they were all jazz. I mentioned blues earlier, and this is, again, a good example of, of something that obviously its origins are, are really unknown, dim and distant past, part of the sort of American folk tradition as well. But again, there's always got to be somebody that, that history suggests is the, uh, the father of the blues. And that, in this book, is a guy called W.C. Handy. Who was he? He was the person who called himself the father of the blues. And he, he wrote a song called St. Louis, St. Louis Blues, which became one of the most recorded songs in history. Um, and he was perhaps the first person to realise that there was something that could be commercially viable out of the music that he heard on the streets in, in black towns and cities and villages, wherever he went. He would hear people with a guitar or whatever instrument they had to hand singing these strange laments, usually repeating the first line twice, often having a 12-bar structure, although, ironically, his songs often didn't. All the things that we would recognise, looking back now, as, as being rural blues or country blues, were there long before the birth of recorded sound. It took W.C. Handy to, first of all, turn the idea of the blues into a commercial art form. And only then after that did record companies go, oh, OK, well, these things are selling. We should go around and see who we can find on our own street corners and see who we can record. And, th- and that's how we end up with people like Blind Lemon Jefferson and so on, getting record contracts in the 20s. And 
ironically, it's that it, our idea of like our sort of modern idea of the blues musician, that sort of twelve bar blues, sad songs, guy selling his soul to the devil at a crossroads or whatever, comes out of that music being taken up again by like the Stones and Eric Clapton or whatever. Actually, a lot of the I mean, probably some of the you know the sort of the best surviving blues songs, blues musicians were actually women. People like Mammy Smith, Bessie Smith. Tell us about some of those. Well, yes, the um, so-called classic blues tradition of the 1920s. Certainly, in, in commercial terms, all the most the most important blues singers of the 1920s were indeed women. And I would think very few of them actually thought of themselves as, as being blues singers as such. I, I, I think I say in the book that if you if you'd ask Bessie Smith what she was. First of all, she would have slapped you in the face for your cheek. And then she would have said, I'm a jazz singer. Because she was playing with, with jazz musicians. She came out of the jazz world herself. But she was singing songs that were extremely mournful, that talked about heartache and despair. But unlike the idea that certainly white people had from the 1960s onwards, you've just been talking about selling your soul at the crossroads, the blues is this cry of existential despair. That is something that white people and subsequent generations have pasted, if you like, on top of the original idea of the blues, which was that blues music was supposed to be entertainment. And if, if you look back to the way that those classic blues records were marketed in the 1920s, the idea was that you would hear Bessie Jones moaning and crying her heart out, and this would cheer you up. You were supposed to enjoy it. You weren't supposed to feel like cutting your own wrists at the crossroads. You were supposed to, to um, dance and or, or almost revel in her despair. And that's uh, that's obviously true of jazz as well at, at this point. It doesn't become the sort of beard-stroking genre that we consider it to be now sometimes, perhaps. And you've mentioned Louis Armstrong and other band leaders like Duke Ellington. Up until the, the Second World War, this was the most popular genre. London was full of dance halls. People were doing the foxtrot. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that, because again, it's it's hard to look back and think that Perhaps the tango, I can understand that, but the foxtrot and other dance moves, it seems odd that they were once considered controversial. Uh, yes, almost anything that made young people dance seemed to really upset their parents right the way through until the 60s. It's it's, it's bizarre. And, and and even generations which had grown up on the foxtrot still hated it later on when, when kids were doing the jive or the twist or whatever. But yes, all the way through, through the 1920s, 30s, and in this country, 40s, 50s, even early 60s, the uh, dance band would be the main source of musical entertainment for young people going out for a, a, a Friday night, Saturday night, date or whatever they, they would they go to the local palais or the lo- local pavilion at the seaside or whatever or, or even a, a small a small town hall and there would be a band or if they couldn't afford a band there would be records all of which sounded pretty much interchangeable but they would all last about two or three minutes and they would all have pretty much exactly the same rhythm and an attractive tune occasionally you get a vocal but more often than not in the early years of the dance bands but particularly you wouldn't the important thing was the rhythm which and it's quite easy to see the the, the link between that and then going to discos in the 70s and 80s and then on into raves or whatever. The important thing is to keep people moving. And this sort of brings us up to the point that I mentioned at the beginning where there's there's an important innovation in recorded music, um, which is electronic recording. And not long after also the invention of like the you know the vinyl LP and then shortly after that the single. But in terms of the electronic recording, briefly, what are the essentially significant things about that that changes popular music? 
in the very early years of recording, only certain instruments, only certain tones, in fact, would translate well through the recording horn. If you think about the picture of um, the uh, dog, his master's voice and so on, the big recording horn that the dog is listening to the music on, that was the, a larger version of that would be, in the very early days, what people would be recording through. And unfortunately, female voices didn't translate well. Male voices were much better. Instruments like the piano were hardly represented at all in the first 10 or 20 years of recorded sound because it just didn't sound right. If, if, if you were recording a whole band at one time, you would have to put the louder instrumentalists at the far end of the room with, to make sure they didn't drown out everybody else, etc., etc. So it was a, a, a very haphazard form of capturing sound. And the actual quality of the music that came out the other end was almost more of a novelty than it was a pleasure to listen to, certainly up, up until the First World War. What happens with electrical recording in the mid-1920s is that, first of all, you can record almost anything and you can capture the sound. It's much easier for the um, first record producers, if you like, to appear to actually create a sort of fake reality of sound, an atmosphere that perhaps you couldn't quite find in real life if you've been, been in the room yourself. But the most important thing of all is that singers start using microphones. Up until that point, if, if, a, if a singer had wanted to make a record, he's having to shout. He you almost always is having to shout over a band. And so if, if there's a band in the background, the singer will be enunciating like that to be heard. You get to the 1920s and suddenly the uh, crooner is born and the crooner is whispering intimately into your ear. And suddenly popular music isn't just a, a question of capturing sound. It becomes an intimate form of communication between the artist and the person listening at home. And the, the uh, big thing about the crooner is that 95% of the uh, crooners were men and they were very much marketed at young women. So here for the first time, pop is almost being squashed, if you like, into a, a marketing de device to reach young women, and which in lots of ways has been its main role ever since certainly in terms of mainstream chart pop. And I'll just reiterate again, just before we finish, that we've, we've covered about the first, not even the first third of this book, really. The rest of the book goes up to the present day, talking about what happens after the introduction of, of electronic recording, which is where we've got to. But to finish off, Peter, we're talking because the book's been shortlisted for this year's Pandarian Music Book Prize. So what does that shortlisting mean to you and for the book? Um, I'm always very cynical about awards, and I always think that we as a culture, the whole of the West, take the Oscars and the Grammys and the Brits and everything far too seriously. But of course, this is completely different. <laughs> this award is a, a wonderful thing. Um, I confess that I, until I saw the, the um, paperback a few months ago of Mark Lewison's book, which won the first Pendrin Music Prize, that I'd never heard of it. Um, I didn't realise there was a, Pen a Pendrin Music Prize. Having written a book that I put my heart and soul into for several years, I was delighted to see it on the long list, thrilled and amazed to see it on the short list. And, you know, it was a one in six chance. I, I, I'm not expecting to win, but it would be fantastic. But to be recognised by one's peers, I think, is what we all hope for, isn't it? So um, extremely flattered. And also, it's a, a, a genre which deserves a prize. Writing about music, people have been doing that in expert and very different ways for decades without ever being considered for awards. There are awards for sports books, so why not for music books as well? So I've been talking to Peter Doggett and we've been talking about his book, Electric Shock, From the Gramophone to the iPhone, 125 Years of Pop Music. Peter, thanks so much for telling me about it. OK, thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
This episode of Little Adams was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.